Christmas is just such an amazing historical reality uh, prophesied hundreds of years before it happened, and then it happened, and it was the beginning of God's incarnational rescue mission for us, and He has come and He has saved us. I hope that as we as we have been going through Luke 1. Luke 1 is kind of like the province of Ontario if you're trying to drive across the country. You're like still in Ontario, day after day after day. Uh, some provinces you can get through in, in, a, in a day. Others, like Ontario, you're in forever. Luke 1 is, is one of those chapters. You're just in it forever and ever and ever. And, and it's just such a long prologue to the life of Christ, isn't it? One of the gifts that God has given to me, though, this year, and I hope that as I've been unwrapping this gift, that, that you've been able to enjoy it as well, is to see just the role that, that John plays in our understanding of Christmas. That, that actually, John and Zechariah and Elizabeth, they are, they are key players in the Christmas story, and, and yet they're so often forgotten. I don't know, how many of you have a John the Baptist in your nativity set? Now, I know he wasn't there, but you could put him in the other room, right? Like, just... Just remember that, uh, that John and his father Zechariah and his mother Elizabeth, they're key players in what God was doing at, at, at the transition of the time, the turning of the age from Old Testament to New Testament. Now just a little bit of a review because we're still going to talk about John today. Uh, we know that his father Zechariah went into the temple. Uh, he was chosen by Lot to burn incense. This was quite an honor once a year that that would be given to a priest to do. And he went in, and as he was burning the incense, the angel Gabriel appeared to him, and he was afraid, obviously, because you're not supposed to encounter anyone in the holy place in the temple. Especially as you're so close to the Holy of Holies, and really the only one that you would expect to, to meet there would be God, but if you meet him, there's a good chance you're not getting out of the temple alive. So Zechariah was afraid, uh, but it was not God, it was an angel. His name was Gabriel, and God had sent Gabriel to Zechariah to say that now things are going to start moving again. God is going to do something amazing. You're going to have a son. God's going to answer your prayers. Zechariah said, how will I know? I mean, I'm old. My wife is, is past the age of bearing children. How will I know? That what you tell me is true, as if like meeting an angel in the holy place on the threshold of the holy of holies isn't enough confirmation. Uh, so the angel Gabriel said, because you did not believe, you will be unable to hear, you'll be unable to speak. Zechariah came out of the temple and he shared somehow the thing that he had experienced in the temple, though he was unable to speak, and then Elizabeth conceived. And John was born. And as all of the family and the extended family gathered together, they wanted to name him Zechariah after his father. I mean, just to remind them of this great gift that God had given them. But the angel Gabriel had said to Zechariah, name him John. This was what we talked about last week. And what does John mean? God is gracious. God is gracious. So John is named and then Zechariah regains his ability to hear. He gains his ability to speak. That's where we pick up today. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Right after this naming ceremony, when all of a sudden Zechariah is able to hear and speak again, and this is a great sign, a great wonder for all the people, and we're in Luke chapter 1, verse 65. And because of this, fear came on all their neighbors, everyone that was gathered, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, what then will this child be? What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. From this point forward, there's great messianic expectation placed on John. And we see it in all of the Gospels where, where people are coming to John and they're wondering, are you the Messiah? Because God introduced the birth of John in such a spectacular way. It's kind of interesting to note that although, and we'll look at this next week on Christmas Sunday, uh, although there was some angelic fanfare, and some years later some, some magi from the east came, Jesus kind of came into the world 
silently, quietly, hidden. God only revealed that to some people. But here, uh, God made very public the way in which John comes into the world. So that news of the miraculous things that God had done through Zechariah, his inability to speak, his inability to hear, then he he regains both. Uh, Also what God had done miraculously through Elizabeth caused people to wonder, what then will this child be? Is he the Christ? He had a much a much bigger entrance into the world than Jesus himself. Well, that, that's the question that we're going to ask ourselves this, this morning. What then is this child to be? And Zechariah will answer. Uh, in his prophecy, God, through Zechariah, gives us an answer to who this child will be. Let's just pause again and pray that God would uh, anoint this time as we look into his holy word, and then we will read Zechariah's prophecy, his Christmas hymn. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the scriptures that you have preserved for us. That here we are in in another country, uh, far away from where this happened, so many years later, and yet that you've given us a window into uh, this great historical moment when you came into the world. And before you entered into the world in the person of your son, You sent forth John. Today, God, as we ask the question, who then is this child or what will this child be? We pray that you would give confirmation in our hearts and we would see uh, the role that he plays in our understanding of the gospel. I pray that you would move in each of our lives to convict us of sin and righteousness that we might have open hands ready to receive the gift of grace. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I read Zechariah's prophecy, what I want us to notice is the total absence of any mention at all of divine judgment. I mean, there is a mention of the forgiveness of sins, but it's, it's phrased in such a positive way that it's almost, it's almost hard to believe that this is Zechariah's prophecy because it's so rooted in the Old Testament. And, and as I sent out to you by email this week, uh, it... It's important for us to remember that Christmas has a context, and that context is the Old Testament Scriptures, and it is right and it is good to look at all of the condemnation that falls on humanity and Israel from the Old Testament Scriptures. That that is a function of the Old Testament. However, it's very intriguing to me that if I'm going to preach this text, if I'm going to preach uh, Zechariah's Christmas hymn, I'm not at liberty to do that. Because my role is to reveal and to explain the text. And the Holy Spirit, working through Zechariah, the father of the one who was going to announce the coming of the Messiah, he he just had Zechariah look back and remember all of the grace, all, all of the unconditional promises of love and forgiveness. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And so as I read through this, and this gives us the answer to who John is, just look at, look at what his father does when he goes back and looks at the Old Testament scriptures. He sees, he sees the love of God. He sees the forgiveness of God. He sees the lavish grace of God. He sees the unconditional promises of God coming to their fulfillment. So we're going to carry on then in Luke 1 verse 67. So, so the question just above, what then will this child be? And then the narrator, Luke himself, inspired by the Holy Spirit, said the hand of the Lord was with him. So who is this child? Verse 67, and and his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Just see the Holy Spirit all over Luke's gospel. And and filled with the Holy Spirit, Zechariah prophesied. And, And this is what he said. Blessed be the God the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. And he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. 
to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, John, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness in the, sh in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. In this hymn, there's so much. I mean, this could be a sermon series. This hymn really could be because of all of the places that, that Zechariah goes in the Old Testament. Uh, but we're just going to look at, at, at two places that, I, that Zechariah goes specifically. And then we may allude to some others. And we're going to divide this Christmas hymn into three major sections. So the first section is that Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesies that, that now is the time that God is going to fulfill the Davidic covenant. He's going to fulfill the unconditional promises that he gave to David about a thousand years before this. The second part we see here is that filled with the Holy Spirit, Zechariah prophesies that God is about to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, which was made with Abraham a thousand years previous to that. So we're, we're talking about ancient prophecies coming to fulfillment now in our preaching text some 2,000 years ago. The third part is that John is not the one who will fulfill these promises, but he is the prophet of the Most High who will come before the fulfiller, the Messiah, and announce the Messiah's coming. Those are the three sections of his Christmas hymn. So, so the Holy Spirit, at the, at the turn of the times, wants us to remember specifically, among other things, the Davidic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and then see that John is the prophet of the Most High, promised by Malachi, who would announce the coming of the Messiah who is going to fulfill these things. That, that's what this Christmas hymn is all about. So let's take a look at those three major sections in order. Number one, that God is about to fulfill the Davidic covenant. Let's look at those verses again, verses 68 to 71. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. Now right away we know that Zechariah is not speaking of his own son. We know this because both he and Elizabeth are descendants of Levi, not of Judah. David comes from Judah. John does not come from Judah. But we know that Jesus, by Joseph, inherits the messianic promise given to David and Judah. Now, we preached on that a couple months ago. If you have questions about the way I phrased that, talk to me after. So, so Jesus is the one who is in the line of David, not John. So we, so we know right off the bat that as, as Zechariah proclaims this wonderful blessing, he's not talking about his own son, at least not directly. Indirectly, we'll see in the part three, yes, of course. Uh, so in summary, he says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. We're, we are blessing you, we are praising you, we are thanking you because you are about to keep your promise to David. He has raised up a horn of salvation from the house of David. And, and a horn is, is a symbol of strength and of power throughout the Bible. You have raised up strength and power from the house of David to save your people. It was also through the horn that you would announce the the, the great victory, usually military victory. 
And then, and then Zechariah says, this is exactly what you said you would do through the prophets. Now, did the prophets say other things? Absolutely. One of the, the primary messages of the prophets is, is repent. You're, you're breaking the covenant. You're breaking the law, so repent. But that's not the part of, of the prophetic message that Zechariah is focusing in on. The, the part of the, of the prophetic message is that the prophets proclaimed uh, the, the sin of the people. They called for the repentance of the people. They, they prophesied the destruction of Jerusalem that happened in 586 B.C. But they said, on the other side of judgment, God will keep his unconditional promises. That's the part that Zechariah is focusing in on. Just as the prophets said. We've been through judgment. We've been through dark days. But the prophets also spoke of the coming of one who would restore us. The coming of one who would redeem us. Translation, Abraham here, to anyone who has ears to hear it, is saying God is about to fulfill the Davidic covenant. Now what is the Davidic covenant? It's great to say that God's going to fulfill it, but what is it? Uh, again, just to give you sort of a, a bird's eye view of what it is, and we could nuance this more, but this captures the essence of it. And you'd find this predominantly in 2 Samuel 7, though there's echoes of it throughout, throughout the Bible, in the Psalms, in the prophets, uh, all throughout Israel's history, there's echoes of it. But, but it comes in its clearest, most most direct form in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And the Davidic covenant basically is this, that a descendant of David will reign as king on David's throne forever. A descendant of David will reign as king on David's throne forever. Now, there's a... a, a a narrow and a broad way to understand the Davidic covenant. Narrowly, we're, we're told that God would, would maintain and establish David's throne over the house of Israel forever. So there would be a king of Israel that sits on David's throne forever. In other words, Israel's not going to be a nation that trades kings. They're not going to go from this tribe to that tribe to that tribe. God has said, this is the family through which I want my people to be governed. Okay, so that's, that's one thing. And then we have the split kingdom and that, uh, we, we're not going to get into that today. But, but God clearly says it's through David's line that I want my people to be governed. But if you read Psalm 2, the king of Israel is the king of kings. Now, we understand that in its full-blown messianic sense, right? That, that, that Jesus, as the Davidic king, is the king of all kings, yes. And he's the fulfillment of that. But, but the supreme king in all of the nations, and this is sort of counterintuitive when you look at little Israel compared to everyone else, uh, when you look at the empires that sweep over the land. But, but God says, whoever is king over my people in Jerusalem, is king over all kings in all nations. So the Davidic covenant is that a descendant of David will reign as king over Israel and over the nations forever. That covenant is about to be fulfilled. Now what are some of the benefits of this Davidic covenant? Well, number one, in 2 Samuel 7, God says, I'm going to give you a land and this is a place where you will reside in peace and security. I'll give you rest from all war. I'll give you a temple. That's how the whole Davidic covenant gets started. David wants to build a temple. God says, no, I'll, I'll give you a temple. In fact, God says, your son will build a temple for my name, meaning Solomon partially, Jesus totally. And then fourth, and this is the mysterious part that even the prophets had trouble bringing together, but we see it with great clarity. God will rule through the Davidic king forever. This is the promise of a theocracy, not a democracy, but a theocracy where God reigns supreme through the Davidic monarch. And this never quite worked its way out in, in Israel's historical experience. Because the Davidic kings, including David himself, always fell short. They, they always failed to fully manifest the perfect reign of God. And, and so the prophets begin to wrestle with this. How, how is this going to come about 
Well, the incarnation is, is a beautiful picture of how that is. It's, it's the fulfillment of that, that a descendant of David who is fully God brings this about. Now, the Davidic covenant is for us. I, I don't want us to miss this. And the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant is God's gift to us. See, the gospel is so much more than, than this sort of philosophical exchange between us and God. I've sinned, Jesus didn't sin, I give him my sins, he gives me his righteousness, he declares me to be right and all is good. It, it, it is that. But it's so much more than that. It's, it's a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And so I just want to, again, can't, can't exhaust this, but I just want to introduce you to some of these ideas. Maybe you've never thought about this before. But as part of the Davidic covenant, it was this promise of a land. Wow. Do we have land that God has promised us? We do. And this land is a place where we will reside in peace and security all our days. And it's not, we don't need to spiritualize this. I'm not talking about heaven. At least heaven is not the end of this. Although heaven would be a legitimate fulfillment. But really, the ultimate fulfillment is this universe. God is going to raise it up in glory. And he's going to give it to us. And we're going to dwell in the new heavens and the new earth. And that is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant promise of land. God is going to give us this creation and we're going to live in this creation in physical bodies where a Davidic king will reign supreme over us forever and ever. The gospel is that. Flesh and bones and soil and dirt and trees and all the kind of magnificent nature that you could ever dream of. And, and, and the land that God gave to, to David because he had promised it to Abraham is just a down payment. It's, it's just a, a small little taste of God's promise of land for us. Secondly, we will rest from all war. See, the king, if you read Revelation 19, the Davidic king, which is Christ, is a warrior king, and he comes and he wages the war to end all wars. And the land in which we live is free of war because he has vanquished all of his foes. There's no more enemies to march against the Davidic king when it is ultimately fulfilled at the return of Christ and Christ comes, defeats all of his enemies, gives us a land in which to dwell in safety and security for the rest of our days without end. This is a beautiful promise. I mean, the gospel is so big and Christmas is so big. It's bigger than a feeling. It's about a land and a king and peace. David was promised a temple. And what did Jesus say? Tear down this temple. In three days, I will raise it up. And the promise that, that the descendant of David would build a house for David, a temple for David, is fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. And then in our resurrection, because we become pillars in that temple, because the Holy Spirit resides in us. We talked about this a few weeks ago, right? We, we see glimpses of this already in Mary carrying the Son of God in her womb. She is a traveling tabernacle, which is just the beginning of God's temple building project. And we are pillars in that temple as the Holy Spirit fills us when we live in the land that God will give us with a supreme Davidic king reigning over us, where we are free from all war forever and ever, we will be temples Revelation says there's no temple there because the Lamb and God himself is that temple and we are pillars in that temple. And then we've already said it, that Jesus is our Davidic king who reigns forever and ever. So, so this Davidic covenant, don't just be like, well, that's sort of, that's nice little footnotes to what God was doing at Christmas. That's the gospel. That's what God's giving us. And it's so big. And so we with Zechariah say, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. For he has visited and redeemed his people. And he's going to do this for us. Many prophets spoke of this covenant. Nathan spoke of it. 
2 Samuel 7. And then directly Isaiah talk, speaks of it. Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, Zechariah, the prophet, not the father of John the Baptist. They all make mention of this covenant directly. And the prayer that we did from Isaiah chapter 9 is just so beautiful, right? They who walked in darkness have seen a great light. That was written 800 years before Christ, and there was 800 years of darkness. Right before that, we're told that the light dawns first in the land of Galilee, of the nations. This light is for Israel and for all people. And then Israel, I mean, Isaiah speaks of it, you know, that when that light dawns, that's the end of war. Now, we've still been fighting wars for 2,000 years because, because God has begun to fulfill, but he hasn't ultimately fulfilled these promises. We wait for the return of Christ for our Davidic king. But we do know this. If this has happened, the rest will follow. Unto us a child is born. To us a son has been given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And yes, this is the Davidic king on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Will this happen? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That's military language, by the way. The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies He's going to do this, and he's going, he's going to do it with all the power and might at his disposal. It's a done deal. So Zechariah begins by just proclaiming that the, the Davidic covenant is about to be fulfilled. And we are still waiting for the fullness of the Davidic covenant to be revealed to us. Number two. Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesies that God is about to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. Take a look at verses 72 to 75. God is going to show mercy promised to our fathers. He's going to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. I want to start with the last part there. That we are to serve God without fear. Now look at this. Verse 75. In holiness and righteousness. Before him all our days. Now how ought we to interpret that? Serve him in holiness. Be righteous, or, oh, God is good. He has promised that he will make us holy and righteous so that we can serve him without fear. Because, you see, only those who are holy and righteous can serve God without fear. Anyone who is serving him without holiness and without righteousness, they ought to be in fear. But what does the writer of Hebrews say? Approach the throne of grace boldly. Why? Don't you know that the throne of God is the throne of judgment? How, how do you approach the throne of judgment boldly? The only way you can approach the throne of judgment boldly if, is if for you the, the throne of judgment has become a throne of grace. It's the only way. The only way to approach the throne of grace or throne of God boldly is that, that that throne is no longer a throne of judgment but of grace. And the only way for the throne of God to be a throne of grace is if God has made you holy and has made you righteous. Because God cannot coexist with, with, with uh, sin and, and depravity and wickedness and evil. And this is the great thing that God has done for us, is that not only has he declared something to be true of us, though he has, that's justification, but he has changed our very nature. 
We do not go far enough when we say that he has declared something to be true of us that's not actually true of us. We have not gone far enough. We have to stand on the promises of God. And I would say the prophecy of Zechariah here is that he has made us holy. He has made us righteous. Now you say, well, hmm, preacher, that does not square with my experience. I'm not holy. I'm not righteous. Well, you're a work in process. You, if you have given your sin to God, if you have nailed your sin to the cross, if Jesus has received the wrath that you deserve, if he has deposited your sin in the grave, if, he, if you believe that he has come back to life uh, having left your sin in the grave, if that is true of you, then the first phase of your regeneration has already occurred and you have been made obedient from the heart. Your heart has been circumcised. You've received a new nature. And that new nature, that new heart, that heart of flesh, instead of a heart of stone, has been sealed by the Holy Spirit so that none can touch it. So our core identity now, if we are new covenant people, is that we have been made holy and righteous in our hearts, and now we ought to live like that. Now we are, we are enfleshed with, with all these sinful tendencies. I, I recognize that. So we, we live with this, this struggle now, right? Because we're obedient from the heart. Uh, in our inner man, we serve the law of God and we rejoice in it. But I see a different law waging war against me and the members of my flesh. So put to death the sin in your flesh because you've been made alive in your inner man. You have a new nature now. And with that which God has started to do, he will bring to completion when? when we are finally adopted as sons at the resurrection of our bodies. Phase one is done if you've put your faith in Christ. Yet you are holy in your inner man. Now, live that way and wage war against your flesh. But we can serve God without fear and holy and righteousness before him all our days because it's done. And that which is not yet completed will be done. I, I love 2 Corinthians. That we with unveiled face are beholding the glory of God. And we are being transformed from sin to righteousness? No. From what? One degree of glory to another, from one degree of glory to another, which means there must already be glory, even if you have to squint to see it. I've strayed off my notes a little bit here. Let's get back to my notes. Uh, the summary of, the, of this text, though, is that all of this is true. Everything that I said is true because God promised it to Abraham. See, God promised this to Abraham explicitly. There are glimpses of it before Abraham, but God explicitly promised it to Abraham that in his mercy he was going to, going to bless all the families of the earth. And that's really what the Abrahamic covenant is. All the families of the earth will be blessed in you, in you, Abraham. If you want to find out where God promised these things, look to Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. And that which we just spoke about, the glorification of ourselves, the changing of our nature, first in our inner man, then in our bodies, is the fulfillment of what God promised to Abraham. Because, because before Abraham, we see that, oh, I mean, as gracious as God would be with us, we just continually pull ourselves back down into sin. We continually pull ourselves away from God. And so God says, look, I need to give you humanity through this one man, Abraham, Abram at the time, unconditional promises. Because if I give you conditional promises, you're never going to make it. So I need to give you unconditional promises. 
And the fullness of these promises is that all of the families of the earth will be blessed in Abraham. What are some of the benefits of the Abraham, Abrahamic covenant? Well, again, we have the promise of land. Secondly, we have the promise of a multinational family nation. A multinational, multi-ethnic family nation. God promises Abraham a great name. And God promises Abraham unconditional blessings. Now, now this covenant, just like the Davidic covenant, is for us. Its fulfillment in Christ is God's gift to us. The land. Well, we've already spoken about the land. The land that God gave to Abraham was a down payment on the, on the new heavens and the new earth. And Abraham himself understood this, according to the writer of Hebrews. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says that Abraham looked forward, not to the land that, that he walked around on earth, but he said, this, this is indicating some greater blessing that God wants to give to me and to those who will be blessed through me. Because Abraham looked forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That city is the new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven into the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, we also benefit from the Abrahamic covenant because we are that multinational family nation that God promised Abraham. We are that multinational family nation that God promised Abraham. This is what the Jews missed, right? This, they did not understand this, that, that the promises that God gave to them in various forms and shadows, in direct prophecies, was not just for Israel, but for the Gentiles too. We are those Gentiles. We, we are the sons and daughters of Abraham by faith. We are those sons and daughters that were promised at the very beginning. We are that multinational family nation. We are a nation in Christ and we are also, also a family in Christ. And we glorify the son of Abraham, so the promise of a great name. Whose name is greater than the son of Abraham? His name is above all names. And we glorify the name of the son of Abraham, Jesus the Christ. Now what about these blessings? In you all the families of the earth will be blessed. I've already spoken of, of this some, but let me just go over it again. That God has promised us salvation. He has promised to extend to us tender mercy. He has promised to forgive our sins. He has promised that we will dwell in light instead of darkness. In fact, this promise is, is so great that God dwells in unapproachable light. Paul says no one has seen God or can see God because he dwells in unapproachable light. And then you get into the book of Revelation near the end and he says that the light, the unapproachable light, fills the new heavens of the new earth. And, and guess what? We're there. That, that is how awesome the promises of the gospel are where the, the these blessings given to abraham for us is come into the light that is unapproachable and the only way that we can do that is if god makes us fit spiritually and physically fit to step into the unapproachable light and, and another way of saying this is that god is giving us life in the place of death god has given us peace with himself and with one another. God has made us righteous. Both in status and in nature. He has promised to adopt us. Which is our resurrection as I said. And eternal life. This is amazing too. Jesus is the Davidic king who reigns supreme. And, and part of the promises given to us. That, that family who is blessed through Abraham is that we will reign with Christ. I don't even know what that means. Well, how, how do we reign with Christ? And, and, and actually, God has not revealed to us all of the good things that he's going to do in all of the ages to come. There will be age after age after age after age after age, unending. And, and God will, he's a creative God. He's going to continue to do new things, new and glorious and wonderful things that he has not revealed to us. And, and the promise of reigning with Christ, as best I can understand it, is this. And I don't understand it, but this is as best as I can understand it. Is that whatever God does, 
in all of the ages to come, we share in the authority of Jesus Christ over everyone and everything in that age, always and forever. So whatever God does, it's not like God shuffles the deck seven ages from now and we find ourselves on the bottom of the deck, that we had our age and it's come and gone. We reign with Christ always and forever, over every age. We reign supreme over the angels. <laughs> That's just... Where, where did you buy your spouse for Christmas? <laughs> Our gifts cannot compare with the gifts that God has given to us. And then I want to end with this. I mean, this end in, in the sense of the blessings that we receive as the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. What does it mean to be blessed in Abraham? It's to have fellowship with God. What does that mean, fellowship with God? Look to 1 John chapter 1, give you a little more insight into this. But this is what it means. It means that we are invited into the inner workings. We don't become God, but we are invited into the inner relationship of the triune God. In a way that no other creature is. So the way that the Father has loved the Son, and the Son has loved the Father, and the way that the Father has loved the Spirit, the Spirit has loved the Father, and the Son has loved the Spirit, and the Spirit has loved the Son. That relationship of perfect love that has always been and will always be, no one has ever been invited into that relationship, but we have. For the Son of God who is the bridegroom, unites us with the Father and we share in the fellowship of Father, Son, and Spirit in a way that no angel ever has and no creature ever will. Now we do not become God. We do not become the Father. We do not become the Son. We do not become the Spirit. We are what? We are the bride of the Son. But the benefit, the blessing, the, the opportunity for fellowship that the bride who is in a one flesh relationship with the Son of God is a fellowship with the Father and with the Spirit and with the Son that no other creature has ever had or will ever have. That's a blessing. Can, can you even fathom that? That is what God came to give us. That's why John says, I want my joy to be complete and my fellowship is with all who believe in Christ, but my fellowship is with the Son and with the Father because of the blood of Jesus. That, that's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Blessed how? Blessed like this. So what does all this have to do with John? Well, John is the prophet who will announce the coming of the Messiah, who will fulfill these two covenants, and, and much more. Look at verses 76 to 79. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. When you relate to God, do you relate to him as a God who is filled with tender mercy? Do you see him as the God who who allows the sun to rise, meaning Jesus Christ, and to shine on you from on high. To shine light into your life where there was darkness. To comfort you where, where you were grieving your own mortality and the death and the mortality of others. Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, says that's how we ought to be thinking of God. 
John is the one who introduces Jesus, who makes all this possible for us. Now, how does this impact us? As I said, this is the take home. I've said it. I sent it to you by email. I said it at the beginning. I'll say it again at the end. Notice that Zechariah contextualizes the ministry of John and Jesus by looking back to the Old Testament. But he does not wallow in Israel's sin. He does not despair of humanity's falling short. Instead, he highlights and he remembers God's unconditional promises of grace. Given to Abraham and David. Long before Jesus made them a reality. Now this is instructive for us. We don't always have to drudge up our current or former sin in order to magnify God. We don't always have to do that. We can remember with fondness and we can celebrate moments when profound grace was unleashed in our lives. And, and so I just pause now at the end of our time together to just ask you, do you remember? Can you, can you think of a time in your life, not when you, were, when you were necessarily convicted of your sin, but just after that moment, when you felt the floodgates of God's love and grace pour out of heaven into your life? Do you, can you think of those moments? Just go back there in your mind's eye. Oh, the sweet, tender mercy of God. I remember it. Can you remember one moment? One such moment. If you don't have one such moment, I want you to have one such moment. And talk to me about it. Talk to one of the elders about it. But if you don't have a moment where you can say, I, I can recall a moment of just un, unceasing, almost as I am showcasing you, inability to articulate grace. Just I have no words. I'm, I'm out of words. But just grace, oh God's grace and love and favor. And, and everything else faded away. And, and there, there was something emotional about it. It wasn't all intellectual. There was something emotional about it. There was, there was an experience that you had with God as, as God touched you with his finger by the Holy Spirit. Have you had that moment? And maybe you fell down and you, you just laid there praising God. Or maybe you cried or maybe you, you laughed. or I don't, I don't know what you did, but have you had that moment? Because if your faith is just a series of intellectual propositions, that may not be enough. And, and St. Augustine himself, he said, I, I had ascended to God intellectually before he descended and grabbed hold of me. Have you had that moment? I pray that you will have that moment. We don't always have to drudge up our current or former sins to magnify God. We can look back in our lives and remember and celebrate and worship God for the moments of profound grace that he lavished upon us. And we don't have to always contextualize that moment with, yes, but I was this, and yes, I was that. You can just say, God is so good and merciful and tender and, and loving toward me. Zechariah shows us that it's good and right to celebrate the good that God has done for us without always having to talk about our sin. Now, is it good and right to remember our sin? Yes, yes. There's going to be lots of opportunity to find preaching texts that take us there. But it's also good to remember these moments of bliss. I want to just give you one illustration and then we'll be done. Imagine for a moment 
a father and a child on Christmas morning. And the father has a gift for his daughter. And he gives it to her, lays it down and says, I want you to open that, but first, let's remember all the ways you disappointed me this last year. What a terrible Christmas morning. What does that child need in that moment? You don't have to revisit all of the sins of the past year. What that child needs to unwrap that gift is knowledge that her father loves her. It has a good gift for her. She can unwrap it. There's other times for discipline. Zechariah knows that his son John will deliver the greatest gift that God can give to the world. That's why he doesn't focus on God's chastisement. So this is time for giving gifts, receiving gifts, unwrapping gifts. Jesus is that gift. Jesus is the gift that fulfills all of the promises of God. All of the promises given to David, all of the promises given to Abraham, all of the promises given throughout the Old Testament scriptures. Let us, therefore, unwrap that gift in a moment of love and tender mercy. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much that you have given us a good gift, a gift that we can't even fully understand or appreciate, but we thank you that you give it to us because you love us, you want us to unwrap it. I pray for, for us that, that we would, would know your tender mercy Pray that if there is anyone who has never been able to unwrap that gift in a moment of, of love and grace and tender mercy, that today would be that day. Lord, we know that all that we have done against you has been covered by the blood of Jesus. We praise you. Amen.